This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. This World Shared Practice Forum will differ from our typical World Shared Practice Forums. This video is an installment of our History of Medicine series, in which we will be discussing the history of modern medicine with experts from around the globe. Unlike most World Shared Practice Forums, there will be no discussion questions during this video. However, if you would like to ask a question or leave a comment, please feel free to do so at any time. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy this video. Welcome to World Shared Practices Forum. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. We're very pleased to have with us today Dr. Jay Wilson. Dr. Wilson is the Senior Associate of Surgery and Critical Care Medicine at Boston Children's Hospital, and he's also Associate Professor of Surgery at Harvard Medical School. Jay, welcome. Thank you. And um, as we well know, and as you well know, uh, congenital diaphragmatic hernia is one of 2,400 live births. The uh, overall mortality rate is 35% today, um, and it remains uh, one of the major causes of death in children, responsible for at least 1% of all deaths of infants in the United States. Um, and so it's a significant problem, and you've devoted your professional career over the last really 30 years to the care of uh, these children. What should we know about the history of how we got to here in the management of CDH? Congenital diaphragmatic hernia history goes a long way back. In fact, the very first description was in 1754 uh, by Macaulay and Hunter. And it, it goes as follows. The child started, shuddered, and breathed easily for a while, but soon relapsed and died in a few hours. With my ingenious friend, Dr. Hunter, I laid open the abdomen and only the colon was in the cavity. When the sternum was raised, the intestines and liver were in the right thorax having protruded through an aperture in the diaphragm. The structures of the mediastinum were forced to the left side. The diminished size of the lungs resulted from the bulk of abdominal viscera in the thorax. It was 1754. And there is a, a photograph which I took of the actual drawing by Hunter, which is one of the greatest drawings of diaphragmatic hernia at the time. In the old days, diaphragmatic hernia was considered the ultimate surgical emergency. If you look at a chest x-ray of a newborn infant with a diaphragmatic hernia, the first thing you're struck by is all of the inflated intestine in the chest, the heart pushed over to the contralateral side, uh, and it is not difficult for one to make the association between a tension pneumothorax and a diaphragmatic hernia being perceived as a tension guttothorax. So the thought was, that this was the cause of these children's distress, and therefore the solution was to reduce that viscera by operation as quickly as possible. What we were all struck by during the repair was that once we got the intestines out of the chest, there was still a lot of space in the thoracic cavity for lung, but there was always a diminished little lung there that wasn't expanding to fill the space. It was hypoplastic. So the, the presumption that taking the intestines out of the chest to allow them to expand was going to solve the problem was staring us in the face 
as not true, and yet it took a decade for people to recognize that. The x-ray always looked better postoperatively, but the child still looked poor. In 1980, when I was a medical student here, um, Jay Vacanti began putting Swan-Gans catheters in newborn infants with diaphragmatic hernia. With that, the physiology was clear that pulmonary hypertension was a significant problem and that if you hyperventilated these patients, removed CO2, raised the pH, either by respiratory or chemical means, the pulmonary artery pressure dropped. And so that was the armamentarian in the time where the thought was that the end of the honeymoon period, that fleeting hours of stability after birth before destruction, was a pulmonary event and the, and the shunt was the enemy. And so all we had at that time to address that was hypocarbia or alkalosis. That's the only thing that could affect pulmonary vascular resistance. We didn't have nitric oxide. Um, you, you gave them oxygen, you made them hypocarbic, and you got rid of their, their acidosis by respiratory chemical means. Um, survival at that time, 1980 to 1984, where we had a Swan-Gans catheter, we had a Siemens 900C ventilator, which is in a museum right now, uh, we had pancuronium, and we had Tham. Uh, and with that strategy of hyperventilation, paralysis, alkalosis, um, we had a 45% overall survival between 1980 and 1984, and a 73% survival for isolated diaphragmatic hernia, those with no other anomalies. That wasn't bad for that era where the average survival was about 50. Clearly, we had pro higher problems with kids that had additional anomalies. About 1984, ECMO came available, and we were an early adopter. We were one of the first eight centers that adopted ECMO. Um, and that had clearly shown benefit in children with PPHN and pulmonary hypertension, and it was assumed this was going to solve the problem of diaphragmatic hernia. Uh, so in fact, we employed it very quickly, did several patients, and uh, started it. Now, the interesting thing about ECMO is that it was developed by Dr. Robert Bartlett, who first got the idea when he was a surgical resident at the Peter Ben Brigham Hospital, rotating at Children's Hospital. As he was watching infants with diaphragmatic hernia die a pulmonary death, he wondered if the new heart-lung bypass machines that Dr. Gross was using for cardiac surgery could be applied to diaphragmatic hernia. And he asked Dr. Gross that. And Dr. Gross, quite rightly at the time, said it probably won't work because hemolysis is a horrible issue and you don't really get more than three hours before that becomes overwhelming, but why don't you work on it? And he gave him some seed money. So the beginnings of ECMO began with a surgical resident observing death in diaphragmatic hernias and wondering if some form of heart-lung bypass might be beneficial. So we were sure it was going to be. And so between 84 and 87, everybody got their operation first as quickly as possible. And then if they needed uh, ECMO, they got ECMO. They still were paralyzed, hyperventilated with the Siemens 900C ventilator, given pancuronium, THAM, and then ECMO. And our hope was it would get better. But it turns out that overall survival dropped from 45 to 42%, and isolated survival from 73 to 61%. So in fact, in the early days of ECMO where complications were more common, ECMO showed no benefit 
in a, in a hyperventilation paralysis alkalosis environment. About 1987, Toronto was the first to suggest that this is a physiological emergency and not a surgical emergency. And they did that by conducting their own experiment where rather than emergently operating on patients, which they had done the previous years like us, they decided to put the children in the ICU and wait till the next day, manage them as best they could. And then those that survived, they would repair. And what they reported is an identical survival from the historic emergent repair and the subsequent delayed surgical technique. Now, they didn't say it was better. They said it wasn't worse. It was certainly cheaper because half the kids didn't get an operation. And when they, when they fell apart, it was in the ICU, not under the drapes in the operating room. So there were benefits. But they didn't use ECMO. So we thought immediately, and this was 87 when I was a first-year fellow in pediatric surgery, what if we adopted that technique and used ECMO preoperatively if necessary? I'll bet that will make a difference. So the era of CDH as a physiological emergency had begun not only here, but in many places once Toronto first made that uh, observation that it wasn't worse. So in 1987 to 1990, we still had the Siemens 900C ventilator. We had pancuronium. We had THAM. Uh, we had ECMO. Um, and we had time. We would delay the surgery, but it was still in an era of hyperventilation paralysis alkalosis, and we were convinced that that was going to solve the problem. Turns out that our survival in 1980 to 84 was 45 percent, 84 to 87, 42 percent, and 87 to 90, 44 percent. Really no difference. Overall survival in the isolated diaphragmaria dropped further to 57 percent from 61 from 73, continuing to show what appeared to be a worse outcome with the help of ECMO versus not using ECMO at all. Much of that related to early bleeding complications as we learned how to manage anticoagulated surgical patients. So we were in a tough spot. Here we had spent a decade. Uh, we had moved mortality from the delivery room and the operating room to the intensive care unit two weeks later at enormous expense and tremendous effort but we hadn't impacted outcome. Um, but now it's the early 1990s. You're uh, the young surgical director of this program. Uh, you're faced with this problem that things aren't getting better despite more aggressive efforts. And indeed, as you just noticed, some of the outcomes in the isolated cases are, are much worse. How did you determine which way to go next? While we, frankly, as a part of bookkeeping, not really to come up with anything special, we pulled all the charts of the children who had died at our institution and we reviewed them. We had a very high post-mortem evaluation rate, over 90%. And we asked a simple question of ourselves as a, basically a chart review, which is why are infants with CDH really dying? What is really killing them? Now, if you talk to anybody, uh, they'll tell you it's pulmonary hypoplasia. He died of pulmonary hypoplasia. And the funny thing is that's, uh, that's an anatomic and really a morphometric uh, conclusion. Um, and many children died without an autopsy, and yet they died of pulmonary hypoplasia. And this is where it was almost an emotional thing rather than an anatomic thing. Because if he died of pulmonary hypoplasia, it's the child's disease. It's not our fault. Did the best we could. But if he died of barotrauma-inflicted 
by our therapies with a pre-existing condition of pulmonary hypoplasia, it might be our fault. And we began looking at reports of children who had lived nine months in our intensive care unit, and the pathology report of the lungs said no alveoli identifiable. And we began to drill down on that, going, well, they must have had some alveoli somewhere along the way because they lived for nine months. And as we looked further, it became more and more clear to us and others that barotrauma was an extraordinary cause of death in these kids. And when we finished reviewing over 100 charts, we came up with a, with a list. The, the causes of death were other anomalies that we couldn't deal with at that time. We had zero survival in cardiac anomaly patients at the time. We had bleeding on ECMO, which was the cause of our worsening result in ECMO patients than prior to ECMO. Uh, we had barotrauma, where we basically saw lungs that didn't exist as lungs anymore. They looked like liver. Um, we had right heart failure with uh, autopsy showing uh, horrifically uh, hypertrophied right ventricles. And in a small number, pulmonary hypoplasia, probably no more than 10 or 15% where both lungs were so tiny and death was so quick that the conclusion was this really was a hypoplastic death. Um, and once we did that, it opened our eyes because then we had guidance. Because the problem was our failure to recognize the real problem. Our entire premise through this whole past decade was that the end of the honeymoon period was a pulmonary event and that the shunt was the enemy. We all knew that the kids were stable and the pre- and postductal saturations were identical. Everything was fine. But every one of us saw the postductal sat drop by five points, then by 10. Then it would start spiraling on down and ultimately that ended up in death. So the shunt was the enemy and it was to be avoided at all costs. And the trouble is that we're all very goal-directed people and we'll get, try very hard to get to our goals, so we have to be careful about our clinical targets. Our clinical target was the best postductal PO2 greater than 100 that we made up. That was a responder. The shunt was zero. That was our goal. But the price, as it turns out, was tremendous barotrauma. The one slide that I want to show is this slide that shows the difference between the responders and non-responders. As we said, we had devised this concept of responder versus non-responder based on the best postductal PaO2 being greater or less than 100 in the first 24 hours uh, of life. A responder, the PaO2 was greater. Non-responder, it had never reached 100 in the first 24 hours of life. The trouble is we defined that, that wasn't given to us as a law of nature, and then we allowed it to drive our therapy. And I'll give you the example. The example is the patient sitting in the bed space looks okay, saturations are um, good, the uh, postductal PaO2. It's 101, the child's not acidotic, we're in reasonable low ventilator settings. This is great. This child's a responder, survival's gonna be 75%, he's gonna live. And we leave him alone. Go to the next patient, looks identical. No metabolic acidosis, low ventilator settings, but the best postductal PO2 was 99. Well, this is very bad. Survival in non-responders is 5% by our historic data. We need to make this child a responder. And so what we did was we did what anybody would do. You turn up the vent. And then you give him a bolus of bicarbonate and THAM to make him alkalotic. 
and then you turn the vent up again and then they get a pneumothorax and you put a chest tube in and you turn the vent up again and, and after several of those cycles you have a child that's 500 cc's positive, the pulmonary compliance has really gone to hell at this point, uh, they spiral down, you end up putting them on ECMO and they die. And the conclusion is damn non-responders, they die every time. But it wasn't until we reviewed our deaths and were honest with ourselves as to why they were dying that we didn't realize we weren't predicting mortality, we were assuring it because we were basically telling these kids, you get your postdoctoral PO2 over 100 or I'm gonna kill you with this ventilator, making you try. And, and it seems funny now, but we did by the score. It was, it's still the most 75% survival versus 5% survival line in the sand with a postdoctoral PO2 of 100 above or below. And that's what happens when we let our goals direct our therapy when we really don't know what we're doing. And so our conclusion from looking at what wasn't supposed to be a big um, epiphany by just sort of going through a chart review, we realized that we were creating a lot of this mortality. And right about that time, the concept of gentle ventilation by Jen Wong, Charlie Stoller in New York came along where permissive hypercapnia was proposed principally in PPHN kids, but they were pushing it in diaphragms as well. And so this was the point where less is more. Um, avoid hypoxia, avoid barotrauma, save every alveolus the child was born with, allow earlier ECMO because the ECMO criteria required barotrauma before you got there. Uh, and it was the nurses that picked it up first. After about four kids, they said, something's different. This is better. But they still wouldn't let us leave. The unit because the kids looked so blue. So the joke is I asked one of my cardiac colleagues if I could borrow a TET for a little while and bring it to my unit and put it next to the diaphragmatic hernia because they looked a lot bluer and, and then the nurses let us go home. So in 1990 we flipped, this was my first year as an attending, we got rid of the Siemens 900C ventilator and got something a little nicer. We went we got rid of paralysis, we got rid of alkalosis, we kept ECMO, but we eliminated hyperventilation. And we allowed these kids to breathe either spontaneously or with, with uh, um, pressure-controlled ventilation, but at uh, CO2s that we would allow to go as high as 60, pHs we'd allow as low as 7.25. You could get on ECMO earlier and easier in this era, and, and we expected a small improvement. And what happened is everything changed. From 1990 to 94, our overall survival went from 44% to 69%, 25% jump in survival. In isolated diaphragmatic hernia went from 57 to 84%, which is what it is today. This was 20 years ago. So we had unmasked a 25% mortality that we had contributed to the baseline mortality in a misguided attempt to control physiology. And we didn't figure it out until we actually sat back and said, why are these kids dying? And that's what we figured out between 90 and 94. At the same time in 1991 is when um, we began talking with Desbone in Toronto, the two biggest centers at the time in the US, we each had over 200 diaphragmatic hernias in the past decade. We had tremendous differences in our management and we began to 
not talk about collaborating in terms of managing patients, but sharing our raw data with one another to allow a post hoc analysis by one another in, a, in, in what was going to be a joint publication. And it was the first time anybody had, had really given another center access to their data because we were all very proprietary about it prior to that time. And so this was evolving in that 91 to 94 era. And that was in, it resulted in a publication called The Tale of Two Cities, the Boston and Toronto Experience, which was actually the first publication of two centers collaborating, at least with data, um, in the history of CDH. And it led to the establishment of the congenital diaphragmatic hernia study group with, with 65 centers collaborating. So, uh, Jay, that's a fascinating overview of um, what was noted in the era, not only in the management of CDH, but really across critical care, the normalization of values. We thought we were doing good critical care, excellent critical care, and yet, as you noted, it took quite a long and hard look for us to realize, actually, the normalization of values caused harm, if not mortality. But around this time, the mid-90s, uh, since I was working with you, um, you started to change your management yet again. What was it that was leading th to the transition away from this focus on the lung? As we went through the 90s, a couple of things happened. One is uh, echocardiography became much more available and much better. Um, we uh, hired a lot more cardiologists, and uh, we began to, almost out of interest, get echocardiograms on the kids initially to just look for, for cardiac anomalies and cardiac disease because we weren't doing well with survival. But then we began to realize that even the children with normal hearts, they weren't functioning normally. We were able to see tremendous pulmonary hypertension and right heart failure. We could see the septums bowed over. We could, we could see the uh, TR jet and we realized as we went along between the mid to late 90s to 2000, that the heart was a player in this. At the same time, we went back to our autopsy specimens that went back a decade and looked at the hearts, and it turns out that our cardiac pathologist said that the, the, the right heart of a child who died with congenital diaphragmatic hernia is the most, most hypertrophic heart that we see in any cardiac anomaly. He said they are so hypertrophic that they end up not having enough filling volume and, uh, and they also probably have no contractility. And that perception by the pathologist fit exactly with what we saw when the honeymoon period ended. You got a point where you were doing okay, 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 and then the bottom fell out and the blood pressure went down and it wouldn't respond to pressors. And if you put an echocardiographic wand on at that time, you would see the right heart just packed it in. Not only couldn't it squeeze to eject, but it couldn't relax to fill, which is why pressors didn't help you. You had a volume problem. And we then realized just by observation and serendipity that the end of the honeymoon period is a cardiac and not a pulmonary event. It's when the right heart finally gives up. And so from that point on, we began to try to manage the heart as much as the lungs. That, that evolved to the point where we began managing the heart more than the lungs, and then we evolved to the point where we considered the shunt, initially it was the enemy, then it was irrelevant, and now we thought it might be beneficial to maintain the ductus 
to unload the right heart. All of this was based on observation with uh, more frequently available uh, echocardiography. And so by the 2000s, everything had changed essentially to putting the kids on a reasonable ventilator setting to get three to five cc's per kilo and not changing that setting unless you could demonstrate compliance had worsened, that this was not an air problem, this was a blood problem. Um, and, uh, we, and so the entire focus was really on right heart management. We used inhaled nitric oxide, uh, which obviously hasn't been shown to work in diaphragmatic hernias in the, in, the, in the randomized trial that it was used in, but that trial was either death or ECMO. If you start nitric oxide with an echocardiographic wand on a patient, you will see the septum in many cases go from a bowed septum into the left ventricle to a flat septum, and you will see the function of the right heart improve. And so I think as a rescue to a failing right ventricle, it doesn't work. But as a support for a functioning right ventricle, it may help avoid failure. Um, that's never been proven in a prospective randomized trial, but I believe it. Uh, we use sildenafil, uh, phosphodiesterase inhibitors, prostacycline, IV and inhaled, endothelin receptors, bocentin we haven't used, but it's been used, milrinone and dopamine are part of our pharmacologic cocktail, all with echocardiographic uh, confirmation that uh, they're beneficial. So when nitric oxide gets put on, it's done with an echocardiogram. When it's taken off, it's done with an echocardiogram, uh, and it, it, it's helpful. So right now, as I say, the, the joke uh, was that I was going to have t-shirts made that on the front says congenital diaphragmatic hernia, on the back it says it's the heart, stupid. Uh, because we felt stupid that now 20 years down the road we finally figured out we were dealing with the wrong organ all the time. Yes, there's pulmonary hypoplasia, but it's a cardiac death. That brings us to now where in 2016 our principles of management are one to avoid barotrauma, have the kid keep every alveolus they were born with. We limit peak pressures to 25, less than 25, but preferably lower. We maintain preductal saturations above 90, and that's okay. We use an inhaled nitric oxide trial as necessary with echocardiographic evaluation and proof of pulmonary hypertension and proof of resolution, or at least improvement. We have an early use of ECMO, which by the way, in the days of hyperventilation, paralysis, and alkalosis, it was harder to get on ECMO, but 78% of the CDH patients in our center went on ECMO. Now it's easier to get on, and only 35% go on. Um, we operate after the patient is stabilized. Uh, we use a patch repair if we are on ECMO because it is less dissection. We use procoagulants on ECMO, this is Amicar. Uh, we use cardiac catheterization for an unresponsive shunt. Uh, and we pay careful attention to the right ventricular function with echocardiographic documentation and uh, a pharmacologic cocktail guided by it. That's really where you've been devoting a lot of your effort, uh, kind of scaling beyond the notion of working within one center to try to learn all these lessons. And now uh, you're sharing data and learning new lessons. Can you tell us about that? You know, the origins of, of the study group came from that frustration in 1990 that, that we were feeling after a decade of failure, and frankly, everybody else was feeling as well. And prior to that time, we all thought we were gonna, going to be able to come up with the answers ourselves and that we would then tell the world and get the credit for it. 
And by 1990, we began to realize, I'm not going to figure this out by myself. And that's when people just started talking at first, just at meetings, the back of the room, at a cocktail hour. What are you doing? You know, what do you think about this, about that? And there really was a couple of years of informal communication, not so much collaboration. Uh, that led to us collaborating directly with uh, Toronto uh, Children's Hospital to have a, a group of total of 400 patients between the two centers compared to data. We learned things from that that were interesting. One, um, and as a result, um, many other people were interested in going forward. This, this CDH study group had begun in 1991 as well as again as an informal group of people agreeing to put aside their biases and their egos and work together and it was a mixture of neonatologists intensivists and surgeons uh, all who had an interest in this uh, that resulted in 1995 uh, with a group of us meeting uh, in Howie in the Hills Florida I, I dare you to find it it's a town uh, in the middle of nowhere uh, to to hammer out the initial uh, plans for the um, CDH study group. There were 65 centers participating, and we went through uh, a thing where we were trying to figure out, can we come up with a risk stratification system? Because without that, it was impossible to share data because some centers have sicker patients than others. You would think everybody would have the same sick patients, but it's not true. Uh, centers with outborn patients, the sick ones die before they get there. Centers with inborn patients count those. And so it was critical to come up with a, a staging system. So we worked as a group and we came up with all the prenatal, early postnatal variables we could. Uh, gender, race, birth weight, APGAR, immediate distress, CPR, gestational age, side of the hernia, whether they were prenatally diagnosed or not. And ultimately, when we did the math, we came up with an equation um, that was based on birth weight and APGAR, which were actually the two most independently predictive variables. And I have to tell you, a bunch of us sitting around the room who flew all the way to Florida said, you, you're kidding me, right? APGAR and birth weight? That's what this came down to? It can't be that simple. And you realize that you know, birth weight in every neonatal condition, lower birth weight is higher mortality, period. There's none that that is different for. And APGAR pulls in a whole lot of stuff about the physiological condition of that newborn. So after we got over our shock, we began to realize it actually did draw a lot of things in. And we pulled together a, an equation that was a, a regression analysis and asked a simple question, the very first paper from the study group, does ECMO improve survivals in neonates with diaphragmatic hernia? And we had 730 neonates from 65 centers, and there was an overall survival of 60 6%, and we stratified them into five risk groups for mortality based on APGAR and birth weight. And lo and behold, interestingly, what we found is those in the highest risk group with a predicted mortality over 80%, ECMO benefited those patients. More of them survived. In the middle, between the you know, 40 to 59% and 60 to 79%, there didn't seem to be any benefit or impairment, but in the lowest risk patients, those that had a predicted mortality of only uh, less than 20%, survival with ECMO was worse, which is interesting because it also tells you if the child is a good patient 
with a low predicted mortality and they end up on ECMO, they don't do so well because probably something not good drove them there. But it was for the first time we could actually answer a question like, does ECMO make a difference in a statistical measurement that makes perfect sense. If they're the sickest kids, it seems to help some. If they're the healthiest kids, it's an additional risk factor that it brings with itself, and so they don't do as well to end up on ECMO. But it proved the power of the, the center. The interesting thing, if, if you look at the top 25 centers by volume, the incidence of ECMO utilization is from 80% to 5% huge variation. So we all do it a little differently, which is the whole point of the study group, because now we can start asking questions like why? You know, why does some center use 80%? These are high volume centers. They see a lot of patients. Um, some centers have very high ECMO utilization. Other centers have very low ECMO utilization. But in the 10 centers that have the highest survival, some centers use ECMO less than 10% and some use ECMO 70% of the time. But, but the survival is not statistically different in these 10 centers. That's fascinating information because it, then it begins to raise the question, do, do we need ECMO? Does ECMO help? Is ECMO just an arrow in the quiver and there is, a, is there another arrow that can be substituted that, that's less invasive? We can never ask those questions before. The new staging system that we came up with was because the original staging system was a regression equation. That's a problem for surgeons because A, it requires math, number one. We're, we're, we're always suspicious of math. Two, it's resuscitation dependent, APGAR. Three, APGAR is subjective. Your APGAR five is, might be mine of three. Um, birth weight's often estimated. These kids are so sick they, they just rule of thumb, looks like two and a half kilos to me. So that the data was probably more dirty based on the APGAR and birth weight than we would like. And it was a complex statistical equation. Several of us had observed that the kids with the biggest defects did the worst. In other words, when you had a healthy, happy little kid who didn't end up on ECMO, was on low ventilator settings, and you went to repair them, they tended to have small defects that you could primarily repair, or a very small patch. And every time you operated on a kiddo who'd had a big, long ECMO run, they had a huge defect or no diaphragm at all. And so Kevin Lally, who, who co-founded the CDH study group with myself and others, came up with the concept of a staging system just based on defect. Obviously, it requires operation to get there, but real simple, that an A defect is a very small primary repair, a B defect is a small patch. A C defect is a large patch, but not a genesis of the diaphragm, and a D is diaphragmatic agenesis. And we asked people that submitted to the registry to begin to catalog their patients by that score. And interestingly, after a couple of years of collecting data, it became very clear that the A patients had a 99% survival in the registry. B patients, a small patch, had a 96% survival. These were not the problem patients. Therefore, we probably don't need to include them in evaluation of severe diaphragmatic hernia and management. The C patients had a 78% survival. 
NEAGENESIS patients of 58% survival. Obviously, the non-repaired patients had a zero survival, and there were 210 of those, and we're trying to get at why they weren't repaired. We took that grading system of ABCD and factored in cardiac and genetic anomalies. Why? Because they both significantly decrease survival as a whole. Both are relatively easily identified most of the time, uh, and therefore we added a plus to an A patient if they had a diaphragmatic hernia and a cardiac or genetic defect. And when you look at the staging system, it's amazing because the A patients still have a 99% survival. The A plus patients drop to 96% survival, which is exactly what the B patients are. The B plus patients drop to 78% survival, which is exactly what the C patients are. The C plus patients, those with a defect, cardiac defect as well, have exactly the survival of 58 as the D patients do, and the D plus patients have a 39% survival. So the presence of an anomaly drops you a grade, and it's very predictable, and this is based on thousands of patients now. And so for the first time ever, the study group published a paper two years ago suggesting that we have for the first time a valid staging system for diaphragmatic hernia that will allow collaborative uh, work, uh, cohorting of patients from multiple centers in order to really ask the question, who has the best practice? Up until now, you couldn't tell because you didn't know whether somebody's diaphragms were sick. You would think that a center that has large volumes of patients would ultimately end up with the same degree of sickness. But it turns out when you look at the registry data, there are some snake-bitten centers that have some pretty terrible patients based on the ABCD scale. And there are some centers that are pretty lucky. They don't have many sick ones at all. So you can't just look at raw survival. But once you compare those, you can look at what your actual survival is compared to what it would be predicted based on registry as a whole. And then if you are above it, we want to know what you're doing right because you're doing something. If you're below it, you want to know what you're doing wrong because you could get better. And, and that's the stage we are now where those of us who review manuscripts on diaphragmatic hernia are beginning to press very hard for people to, if they're talking about survival statistics and figures, we're pushing them to include the staging system so that we can evaluate it on an even playing field. And that has taken from 1995 to 2015, 20 years, to go from a group of people who were frustrated, who agreed to collaborate, who realized they weren't going to solve this on their own, to a, a, a very, very loyal 65 centers internationally that, that contribute anonymized data on every patient. Um, that uh, uh, Pam Lally, who is a physician herself and a pediatrician, who is Kevin's wife, manages the database. and. Uh, and it has resulted in multiple publications that you could never do. So the modern era is, is collaborative, as it is with all rare defects. And that's taken 20 years, but um, the future is, is collaboration, not individual breakthrough. Jay, uh, one question I'm sure colleagues around the world are wondering. Does the timing of repair matter? Um, we have, through the 
25 years that I've just described have tried it every way. Initially, patients were repaired first and they only went on ECMO post-repair. That was in the emergent surgery era. Then, when we had delayed surgery, the patients were placed on ECMO and they were not repaired until they came off of ECMO because we were concerned about bleeding on ECMO. Uh, then, um, as our anticoagulation management became better, um, we um, began operating on ECMO right before they came off, after they had met criteria to decannulate, figuring ECMO could support them through the physiologic uh, trauma of surgery. Um, and then they, and if we had bleeding, they could be decannulated because they already were ready. Then, we realized that we were doing a lot more patch repairs. The tissues were always edematous. It wasn't very aesthetic for the surgeon. And we began moving the repair earlier, thinking if we could repair them right after they go on, they have the whole ECMO run to recover. So when they are ready to come off, they really are ready to come off. And the surgery and all the physiologic inflammation is a remote event. Um, and so we've done it every which way. And I was a firm believer that early repair on ECMO was better. Uh, bias, but no data. So we, we actually asked the study group the question, does, um, does the timing of repair on ECMO make a difference? And we looked at data from 45 centers uh, between 2007 and 2010 uh, of all unrepaired patients requiring ECMO and we categorized them by centers that always repaired on ECMO. That was 11 centers, 127 patients. Sometimes repaired on ECMO, meaning they would prefer to repair them after they came off, but, but would repair them late on ECMO. Um, if they wouldn't come off, they were not willing to let them die unrepaired. That was 20 centers, the majority, 271 patients, and never repair on ECMO. Uh, they put them on ECMO, and if they don't come off, they don't get repaired. And that's 14 centers and 76 patients. And we asked the question, they were not clinically different by gender, gestational age, birth weight, APGAR scores, cardiac or chromosome anomalies, and most importantly, defect uh, size and graded size. So these were identical groups of patients by the CDH staging system, the modern one. And if you look at the log rank analysis, survival was identical between the three groups. P-value 0.33. That astounded me because I was a firm believer that repair and ECMO was better. But the survival, ultimate survival was 57% in all three groups of patients, 45 centers. So. The conclusion from data in our study group would mean repair on ECMO means more children repaired. As I pointed out, we repair 92% of ours. There are some centers that repair 70% or less. Um, there are more patch repairs on ECMO, which is data I didn't discuss. The interesting data, which I didn't show, is there seem to be longer ECMO runs if you repair the patients on ECMO, statistically longer. And there are statistically longer links of stay in the hospital, which I can't explain there's no difference in survival. Um, so I think 
based on that, if you say, when should we repair, when your patient is stable, and it probably makes no difference at all to survival when you repair, it's probably the least important thing if you're talking about survival. If you're talking about finances with a different hat, you could argue that repairing the patients on ECMO mean more are repaired, more uh, hospital days, more ECMO days, and therefore a more expensive way to do it without showing an improvement in survival. And so I'm truly conflicted. In, in, in our center right now, we are at a point where some of us are leaning towards repairing after the patients come off and others still want to repair the patients on ECMO because the data is the data and this is the closest thing we have to say the timing of ECMO doesn't matter, but as a, as a good shepherd for the, you know, the expenses we incur, um, it, it may not be wise to be repairing these kids on ECMO. So Jay, summarize for me, if you could, uh, what you've learned in the last 25, 30 years. Um, the first thing I've learned is that careers go by in a flash. It's hard to imagine I've been doing this for 25 years. Um, um, but we've, I think we've learned a lot. Um, we've learned that several things are dead ends. Hyperventilation is a dead end. It increases mortality. Nobody in the world hyperventilates anymore, just about. Emergency surgery is a dead end. It's, this is a physiological emergency, not a surgical emergency, and most places in the world delay surgery now. Uh, open fetal surgery, which we had great hope for, is a dead end. Um, the, the, the mother can't um, maintain the fetus, and they're born prematurely, and that's not done. Um, we have several fulfilled dreams. Uh, collaboration, the, the entire ELSO group, the Extra Corbial Life Support Organization, 20,000 ECMO patients, data collected from day one in 1984, um, is a tremendous resource. The cooperation of the congenital diaphragmatic hernia study group, 65 centers working together to try and answer the question uh, where um, everybody is very sharing with their ideas and their data. Uh, the postnatal staging system is huge. The ABCD staging system may not be the best, but it's the first genuine, robust way to stage newborns with diaphragmatic hernia that will allow multi-center prospective randomized trials and collaboration. It was impossible without a staging system, and it took us 20 years to get it, but we got it. Uh, and, and finally, the reality that congenital diaphragmatic hernia is a physiological emergency, not a surgical emergency, and that the heart is a huge player uh, uh, in addition to the lungs. And the principal reason for mortality is uh, the right heart failing. Our unfulfilled dreams, tracheal occlusion. They're trying it with balloons now. Um, our, we did the original tracheal ligations. I would love for this to work. There is a terrible problem with selection criteria in that uh, several of the programs have up to 40% primary repairs in their high-risk fetal diaphragmatic hernias severe enough in their minds to require a fetal intervention, and yet a primary repair has a 99% survival in the CDH study group. So they, while we have a great staging system for um, newborns with diaphragmatic hernia, the, the staging system for fetuses with diaphragmatic hernia is a Tower of Babel, and that needs significant intervention. The trouble is we have to bring obstetric cogs on board because, after all, while they're a fetus, 
they're really an obstetric issue and there has not been the same um, attention to developing a, a robust staging system that everybody can use. Um, ECMO is an unfulfilled dream. It's a support, not a therapy. And, and, and I, I think it probably helps to some degree, um, but I don't think it helps as much as we think it does because there are centers with survivals within 10% of our own that barely use ECMO at all. So it's a tool and it may be able to be replaced with a better tool. Uh, the autologous diaphragm. Uh, we have, in Dario Fauza in our center, has had a diaphragm that has been constructed from mesenchymal amniocytes that we have done in small and large animals so that we could uh, harvest them and have a diaphragm that grows ready for the newborn with diaphragmatic hernia of their own autologous cells. But the FDA is not letting us do it because of concerns about um, growth in, um, in cultures containing um, you know, fetal calf serum and it's difficult to grow them in serum-free media. So uh, as a result, we have recurrent diaphragmatic hernias all the time when the Molex or Gore-Tex patches tear out, they have to be reoperated on. So there's an opportunity for improvement that I think will, will happen. Um, the future challenges are coordinated follow-up. We have a robust follow-up program in diaphragmatic hernia here. Most centers don't. There are only a handful in the world. These children are not well and you need to have a minimum coordinated follow-up. There needs to be a prenatal staging system that is as robust as our, as our CDH study group postnatal staging system. We need to look at the genetic root causes of this. There have been a lot of gene work done by several centers and there's something going on in the vitamin A pathway. There are a lot of defects in that pathway and we need to sort out how that plays out. Um, fetal lung growth. We are trying tracheal occlusions and tracheal ligations and everything to grow these lungs, but at the end of the day, every physical move we make is converted to a biochemical signal. I was a biochemist in graduate school before I went to medical school, and my belief is we can unravel the signals that are being produced biochemically to create lung growth in the fetus by tracheal occlusion and provide the chemical to the patients much like when I was a resident, we did a lot of surgery for gastric and duodenal ulcers. They never do them anymore because H2 blockers came along and H. pylori came along, and now there's no more ulcer disease, relatively speaking. So we had a surgical solution to a medical problem. Pulmonary hypoplasia is a medical condition. It's not a surgical condition. We're attempting surgical manipulations, but that should result in a biochemical signal that once we understand it, we can provide the biochemistry to resolve pulmonary hypoplasia. And finally, the tissue engineered diaphragm, which has to come because as more and more kids survive, they're having one, two, three, four, five replacements of their diaphragmatic patch over their young years as they grow to adulthood. Finally, uh, Winston Churchill is one of my favorite people, and he once said, success is nothing but going from failure to failure with undiminished enthusiasm. And I guess Having just discussed all this, you can see that there's a little bit of him in those of us that struggle in this field. Uh, well, uh, Dr. J. Wilson, um, thank you very much for this uh, terrific overview of um, the long saga of uh, children with congenital diaphragmatic hernia and those who have tried to take care of them. Thank you very much.
This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.